soon. <laughs> After school, Alexander's mother takes him and his brother to the dentist who find a cavity in Alexander's mouth. Alexander then recalls the other bad things on the way back to the car. First, the elevator door closed on his foot, and outside, Anthony pushed Alexander into a mud puddle, and Nick called him a crybaby. Finally, when Alexander started hitting his brother for calling him names, his mother scolded him for getting dirty and starting a fight. It wasn't going well. Still this first day. At the shoe store, Alexander wanted blue sneakers with red stripes, but they said they'd sold out. His mother bought him plain white shoes, which are the only ones available in his size, but he refused to wear them. When his family came to pick him up at his father's office, Alexander played with the copy machine, knocked over books, tried to use the telephone, resulting in the father asking the family not to send him to the office anymore. That night, after having lima beans, and, you know, in the Moore family, the saga is cream corn. And I still suffer to this day from my five children being critical of the fact that I suggested they should eat cream corn at dinner, at least a no thank you helping. For Alexander, it was lima beans. For us, it was cream corn, which I like. For dinner, Alexander is disgusted by the kissing he sees on the TV. His bath water is too hot. His soap got in his eyes. His marbles lost in the drain. And he's forced to wear his railroad train pajamas. Lastly, at bedtime, Nick takes back a pillow he said Alexander could keep. Alexander bites his tongue, and the cat chooses to sleep with his brother. That's a no good, very bad day. In fact, in the book, if you were to read it, you'd find out that Alexander's hope and desire was because it was so awful in America, he wanted to move to Australia. <laughs> Trevor, you can take note of that. But when this book was published in Australia and New Zealand, then Alexander's wish was to go to Timbuktu because he was already in Australia. So where is this at in terms of our day? What is it that allows us to recognize the demands that life is so daily and yet in the midst of it, the core issues of our life have to be addressed? You know, in the foolishness that's going on around us right now in our world, we have men who dress up in dresses and we're supposed to call them women we have a Supreme Court justice who can't define what a woman is. We have, uh, in the last week, a, um, a uh, congresswoman who said, the roads in America are racist and the female crash test dummies need to fight the gender inequity by making female dummies as well as males. I, I don't make this stuff up. I mean, you have material every week you can use on this. The um, realities that in our world are that Portland, for the first time in 30 years, is not gaining a population every year. It's down 4%. Portland right now has a 40% commercial vacancy and the only reason it's not higher is because of long-term leases that businesses cannot get out of. We have the reality that people are vacating our city and our state. I have in my office building in the last three months seven attorneys that have moved out of Portland into our office building. And the stories they tell are legend. 
about trying to fight through the street participants to get into the door of their downstairs office building. But maybe most troubling are the calculated things that come out of our supposed individuals in charge of our government. And uh, there is, if you've heard, a current proposed House Bill 2002. And that House Bill allows children 15 years and older to get full access and control to irreversible gender-affirming care. And further, it mandates that doctors are not to disclose to parents, otherwise they can lose their licenses, they can, lose, they can get civil and criminal penalties. And there are even exceptions where the children's age can go down below 15. That's insanity. And I have more than one physician that's told to me, I'm either getting out of practice or I'm getting out of Oregon. As an attorney, if that House bill came to me and I was told to do things that that bill proposes, it would be mandating malpractice for me. It's kind of like our world is kind of like the bull in the china shop. He's already in there and he's already done damage. We don't know how much more damage he's going to do, but it's coming. And the bull doesn't know either because he's never been in a china shop before. <laughs> but it is chaos. And so what you fall back on are things that have to do with your faith, to being men and women of integrity, and of deciding things that you think are honorable. So here's what we're going to do for today. As we get into the scriptures, and as we address the issue of doubt and how to handle it in our faith, I'm going to ask you to go into a room with me, just you and me. It could be my office. Just you and me in my office. And the clock is off. Don't worry about that. <laughs> and I say, this is a time when we're going to talk about the things that have pierced our soul, S-O-U-L. I'll give you my list. A father who uh, raised us, professed to be Christian, taught in the churches, and at some point bailed out on the family and left not only the state but left the country to my mother as a single parent. To a mother who died at an early age from multiple sclerosis. To a brother who was killed at age 16 in an auto wreck that I was in where I almost died. To a sister who had an early stroke and is now suffering in the final stages seven years later of that stroke. That's my list. And then I'm going to ask you, what is the thing that's pierced your soul that you struggle with? I want you to put it right on the table and leave it there for about 15 minutes. And then we'll pick it back up again. What is it? It could be that it's not the hard things that have happened in life for you. It could be personal failure. It could be things where you're convinced that God cannot use you because of your past. All those things are answered in our text today. You know, the sequence for studying the Bible kind of is in reverse order. I don't know if you know that. But when you become a Christian, the first thing you get acquainted with are the epistles, the New Testament books. And well, you should, because that's the rich, straight-on description of what God it means in the life of a believer and the life of a church. Second stage you find yourself surprised by moving back to the Gospels 
And in the Gospels, you find that as a precursor to the church age in the epistles, God sent his son to walk the roads that we walk. And you begin to realize that the freshness in your spirit is revived by walking with Jesus. By the way, I'm late to the party, but I've started watching The Chosen. And there are a number of you in this congregation that have already recommended and watched it, and I want to add my recommendation. It freshens your perspective. I think the, the, the license that is applied to the different movie sequences is within what I understand the scriptures to be, and you'll find yourself encouraged. And in fact, one of the chosen scenes we'll talk about today. That's the second stage. Third stage is the Old Testament. You kind of venture back there, and you make it as far as Leviticus, and then you get blown out. And... And maybe except for the Psalms or Proverbs or Song of Solomon, which I always read as a kid. I thought that was cool. Um, we don't get much into the Old Testament, even though Christianity is Jewish. Its roots start in the Old Testament. So for today, it's you and me in this office, and you've laid down on my table the thing that pierces your soul. The thing that says, John, I can't shake this. I'm discouraged. I don't understand it. I have had in the last few months two different individual families who've had to bury their children. That's not supposed to happen. But it does. How do you place that kind of circumstance into the scriptures? If you have your Bibles this morning, first of all, hold them up. That's our thing. All right, very good. I see a lot of them. Two study Bibles that are great, New International Version, I use, Ryrie Study Bible, another good one, each of them sold two million copies, get a good study Bible. Jesus addressed the issues of the core troubles of the heart, and he addressed it to his, with his disciples in a whole range of ways. He taught it, first of all, in relation to those who were not yet believers, they were not followers of Jesus. And so we find in the Gospel of John that Jesus encountered at Jacob's well a woman who came privately and alone to draw water. And the chosen has this scene in it and it's very powerful. I think it's number 8 on season 1 or something, but anyway, go watch it. Um and she comes alone, and Jesus' disciples have gone to get him food, and so Jesus is there with the woman. Now, the backdrop to this is Nicodemus, of course, in chapter 3, where Nicodemus comes and says, how do you do those miracles? He came at night. He said, I, what's going on? I, I, I'm a teacher of the law, and I don't understand it. And Jesus said, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Well, that just created new problems for Nicodemus. Because, wait a minute, a man can't go into his mother's womb again. What do you mean? And Jesus said, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Moving past Nicodemus to the woman at the well, Jesus comes and asks the woman, a drink. And this woman, who we don't know at all yet until the text introduces us to her, is a woman of 
ill repute. She's been married five times, and the man she lives with is not her currently her husband. But she says to Jesus, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have given him, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So that instruction from Jesus to the woman brought new puzzles to her mind. And so she said, well, I don't understand. Jacob's well. We come here to get water. And, and you're telling me that there is a spring of water that springs up to eternal life. And Jesus and the woman and and uh, Jesus said just that. He said, uh, "If you ask the water I give you, it will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life." The woman said, "So give me this water, so I don't have to come back." And Jesus did a deep dive with the woman. He said, "Go call your husband." Uh oh, the jig is up. Particularly when Jesus said. You've been married five times. The man you're with now is not your husband. And the woman was either simply impressed that Jesus knew this about her or she was very clever and tried to distract Jesus. I don't know the answer because either of those are interpretational uh, things that would work in the text. But she said, I see you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you... Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Either by way of a genuine question or a distraction, she said, let's talk theology. Let's get off the subject of me being married five times and the man I'm with now is not my husband. John 21, John 4, 21 through 24 on the screen. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me. Time is coming. And you'll worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. And so he righted her theological ship and directed her back not only to Jerusalem, but to the Messiah who was to come. And she had the quickening of spirit to say, I know that when Messiah comes, he will explain everything. And Jesus said, I am, I who speak to you am he. So while the disciples were gone, Jesus had this interaction with this woman, and he focused on the core issues of her life, which were, I don't understand my religious heritage. I certainly made a mess out of my life. And yet you, as the Messiah, have sought me out and come to me and today identify that I am the one that, I, that you are to follow. So at this point in this message, Jesus is redirecting the woman from issues of what we would say are temporary to issues of the permanent. He's saying the issue's not 
physical water that you drink. The issue is addressing core issues in your life. And the way you do that is through me, Jesus said. Well, the woman's joy overflowed, and she said, as the disciples returned, he has the Messiah, and went off to tell those that she was around. So one of the first things that we do when we're redirecting the values of our life is we have to get beyond the temporary, we have to get beyond the physical, the circumstances of life as we know it, and look forward to what God is doing in the future. And Jesus directed the woman's attention to that. We think with a redemptive result. Second question that you are hesitant to ask comes with John the Baptist. John the Baptist and Peter are two of my favorite characters in the Gospels. John the Baptist, because he's straight out, <laughs> everything about John the Baptist was different. What he wore, what he ate, and his message. And he went cutting a swath through Israel saying, you must repent. And people followed John the Baptist, and he baptized them. And in fact, if we were to go back to Matthew 3, we'd see that even... He baptized Jesus, who then had God the Father exclaim that he was well pleased with his son. So John the Baptist is one of these men who you are convinced you could never dissuade him from the convictions of his life. But toward the end of his life, he ended up in a Roman prison. And he was smart enough to know that in the prison his life was soon to end. And John asks the second question that we're not supposed to ask God, but that Jesus responds with grace. John says in John 11, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? You know, that almost sounds sacrilegious to come off our lips. Because it's John saying, was I wrong? Did, did I not hear God the Father exclaim his approval of you when I baptized you, Jesus? How is it I'm in prison now? My expectations were never that the kingdom was going to end up like this. And I don't understand it. Now, the reason that I'm so enthusiastic about the Gospels is the gentle, compassionate way in which Jesus handles our questions. You could think <laughs> Jesus would say, how long I've been with you? <laughs> you haven't gotten it yet? But what he says is exceedingly different. He says in chapter 11 of John, verses 4 through 6, excuse me, Matthew 11, 4 through 6, thank you. Jesus replied, watch this answer of Jesus. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, 
the dead are raised, and the good no news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus did three things in his answer to John's disciples as he sent them back to John. One, he said, ask your questions. Do you see that? There's no reprimand. Those soul-piercing questions that you have on my table, the first thing we say is, bring them to God. Ask him about them. I don't understand, Lord. It doesn't compute within my expectations, within the hard things that I have in life. I didn't ask to be part of this family. <laughs> I didn't ask for these parents. I didn't ask for the kind of health reversals that I'm in. And Jesus said to John, ask affirmatively, ask your questions. The second answer right here on the screen is, watch what God has done. He's made the lame to walk the blind to receive sight. He's one who, if we were to go through the Gospel of John alone and see the seven signs, we would see he changed water into wine. He healed the royal official's son. He healed the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethsaida. He fed the 5,000. He walked on the water. He healed the man born blind. And I love that in John 11 because the Pharisees are just beside themselves. <laughs> he what? He can see? Bring him here. And they brought, him, brought the blind man before him. And he said, bring the man's parents. And they brought the man's parents. And they confronted him and said, what is this? And the blind man said, <laughs> all I know is once I was blind, now I can see. And Jesus says to John's disciples, to his faithful servant who is discouraged in prison, remember what God has done. The lepers are clean, the deaf have heard, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. God's agenda continues. That's the second answer that God gave John's disciples and the third answer is right at the end of that section when it says blessed is the man who does not fall away third answer is keep on keeping on persevere blessed is the man who does not stumble on account of me the work that we've taken on following Jesus has with it the responsibility of persevering and Jesus reminds John's disciples to remind John to persevere. Unless we misunderstand Jesus' opinion of John, he goes on to say a few verses later, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there's not man, there's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. No criticism for the question. John took those soul-piercing fears and he said go to Jesus and ask him and the answer was God's in control the third question that we come to has to deal not with just 
those who confuse the immediate for the future, but those who have expectations that go unmet. And in that regard, we go to the end of Jesus' life. Jesus' death and resurrection was predicted at least six times by him in the Gospels and many more times in the Old Testament by the prophets. And as Jesus died and rose again, before he ascended to heaven, he stayed on this planet for 40 more days. And on that planet, on this planet, he met with, at times, groups of hundreds of his followers, at times with just two travelers on the road to Emmaus, at times to the women who remained faithful. And by the way, one of the things I so like about the chosen is they have a couple of female disciples in the group that are following Jesus. I like that. We don't ever get that press, but it's the women who really were the heroes of Jesus' life and following him. The, the men, before his death, every one of them deserted him. Boom. The women didn't. Anyway, after his death and resurrection, after appearing for 40 days, he's instructing the disciples again about what to expect. Now, he's done it before. He said, I go to prepare a place for you, and then I'll come back again to take you to myself. He said to Peter in another section, where I'm going, you can't follow. Peter said, I'll follow you anywhere, Lord. And Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows, before my death. And in fact, he did. So you would think in this third question, and by now you've figured out that really it's not questions that I'm suggesting. You can't ask God. It's just the opposite. It's questions you must ask God. Third question comes in Acts chapter 1. And there, after Jesus' teaching, appearing, going through walls without the door, while the door is locked, teaching the disciples, telling them he's going to heaven, he'll come again, and on a, one occasion while he was with them, he gave them the command, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised which you've heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you're baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit's ministry in the Bible, just so you understand it, was a temporary time of enablement and blessing to those who followed Jesus up through the death and burial and resurrection. It's what John calls the Spirit is with you. But Jesus is now predicting that the Spirit is going to indwell them. And as we sit here today in the church age, if you're one who has believed in Jesus, you are indwelled and sealed by the Holy Spirit, and he'll never leave you and forsake you. But in promising the Holy Spirit, here's the third question, and it has to do with expectations. I, I, it staggers me. Verse 6, so when they met together, they asked, so when they met together, they asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Are you serious? Put yourself there. Follow Jesus for three days and everything Jesus would do and all the promises and predictions and that he's going to heaven, he's going to come back and they say, time to bring in the kingdom. Do you struggle with expectations in your own life? 
even though they're incorrect? And how do you handle that? Do you let them go? Or do you hold on to them? This is Jesus in Acts chapter 1. He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the promise wasn't to reprimand them for that question, even though the question in my view was a bizarre question, but it was to encourage them again of the same message that he goes and he's leaving them with the Holy Spirit and all that was necessary to enable them to be the church that God wanted them to be. So the, uh, the answer to the questions, how do I, the answer to the question, how do I deal with my confusion and doubt? The answer is, take it to God. Take it right to his feet. And let him be one who ministers and gives you the kind of confidence and knowledge to persevere in the circumstances that you're in. We loved the book of James, and we were there for a number of years. And if we were to look at James chapter 1, again, verses 2 through 6, it would say to us again, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. But let's do a deep dive for about two minutes. If you read two more verses, you'd say, but the text says, but let, you, but let him who is persevering in the trials of his life, the text says, but when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Doesn't that contradict what we said? And the answer is no. The doubting in James 1.8 is a challenging of God. It's one what it unbolts faith. Remember this text says, must believe and not doubt. It's one who debates God, who goes to the mat with God and said, I refuse to believe that you're a good God and that you brought this into my life. I refuse to believe that your scriptures are true, that you're finishing me off for the day of redemption. And the warning is, on the piercings of the soul issues that we're talking about, if you go to the mat with God, refuse to believe that by faith he's working in your life, you can end up in the opposite predicament, like a wave that's whipped and tossed by the wind. Maybe that's why in further defining wisdom in the book of James, we get to chapter 3, and James reorients us to what wisdom is in chapter 3. And verses 17 and 18, when he says, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving. So keep in mind, you don't want to debate God. You want to, by faith, believe that he's working. Submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Where does it leave us? We have these circumstances in life that we didn't ask for that either come in a way that confuse us that cause us to say God you're either not 
good because you've allowed this in my life, or you're not loving and you don't care that it's in my life. And the scriptures say there's an answer to the piercings of our soul. It's in Matthew chapter 11. It's only a few verses after that wonderful, beautiful dialogue with John's disciples. And Jesus teaches this. And here's our answer. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And watch this next phrase. And you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Take that thing on my table. Package it up. Give it to God. It may be kind of like the children's toy where, you know, the little animals pop their heads up and you hammer them down. And then the next day they pop up again. This walk of faith is not a once-for-all kind of a thing. And so as you give your piercings to God, you may have to revisit that a dozen times or more. But that's honorable for those of us who love God, who follow Jesus, and who are committed to a life of faith in the midst of the course of events that he brings to us. Let's pray. Father, we, we find ourselves at times easily distracted by the events of life in a way that causes us to doubt either your hand in our life or our ability to follow you. We're so grateful for the compassion of your son who, when he walked among us, encouraged us to give our burdens to him to unload our doubts and fears at his feet and to trust that you alone are the one who bring joy and life. In Jesus' name.